Our first reading is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18. Ephesians 6, the uh, armour of God, well-known passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armour of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armour of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Would you turn then please to Psalm 27? We just sang that a minute ago. Psalm 27. I'll read the whole psalm. The text for the sermon this morning is verse 14, the last verse of the psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defence of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent he will hide me, he will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When thou didst say, Seek my face, my heart said to thee, Thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide thy face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help, do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. 
Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now our text, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Covenant people of God, many uh, tribal cultures expect young men to prove themselves with acts of daring and courage. There may even be some uh, rite of passage involving perhaps uh, taking a spear and going into the bear cave to dispatch the beast, or uh, swimming out to a reef in shark-infested waters and back again, or something of that kind. And even in our relatively tame culture... You often expect the young men to be the ones who are bolder and more aggressive and take more risks, and they certainly appear to do that on the road and in the pub and elsewhere, at least if the papers are to be believed. Shouldn't be out of place then if we call on Mark and also on the other young men of this congregation to be men who are filled with courage, to be brave. But of course we're not talking here about the world's idea of bravery or courage. The biblical idea is quite different. And that call to courage is something that is addressed in the Bible not only to young men, it's also addressed to young women, and it's also addressed to older folks. Two points this morning. First of all, why we need to be brave And secondly, what it means to be brave, why we need to be brave and what that means, what that command means. And I don't know if it comes as any surprise to you, but as we look in the first place at why we need to be brave, I don't know if you are aware of just how frequently the Bible calls upon God's people to show courage. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, where uh, Moses was giving his, his last counsel to all Israel before they crossed over into the Promised Land, he gave this command to all the people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. And of course he was talking about the Canaanites. And Moses, God, through Moses, gave exactly the same command and counsel to the new leader of the people of Israel at that time, to Joshua, whose name is equivalent to Jesus, meaning salvation, and there is great significance in that for courage, in verses 7 and 23 of Deuteronomy 31 as well. That same command, almost exactly the same wording, be strong and courageous. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 6, 7, 9 and 18, the Lord repeats that same command to Joshua personally. And there are many, many other instances of this in the scripture. Psalm 31 verse 24, be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. 
Isaiah 35 verse 4, written to those, addressed to those who are anxious, to those of anxious heart. Take courage, fear not. And you find the same thing essentially in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 6 and 8, the Apostle Paul describes himself and the other Apostles and other Christians as being always of good courage. We are of good courage, he says. And in Ephesians 6, as we read, the same Apostle commands God's people, be strong, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And verse 14 of that chapter, similarly, stand firm. In our text, David issues this command to himself. He's, in a sense, he's talking to himself, applying the word of God to himself, and he puts it using three words. He commands himself, wait, be strong, and take courage. Three similar ideas. The word wait, sometimes it can be translated, the Hebrew word can be translated uh, to bind cords together. And the idea is of a rope, perhaps, that is bound together with many cords and is very strong and enduring as a result. Uh, our waiting is to be like that, strong endurance. The word be strong, that command implies that we should be firm and well established. And the command to take courage especially means that we show strength, that we exhibit it. Not only that we're given it, that's true too, but that we display it in our lives. Courage, strength and boldness. So one reason why we need to be courageous, to be brave, is because God commands it. And he does so quite frequently in his word. Okay, but why does he do so? Why does the scripture have so many commands to be strong and brave? What I'd like to suggest to you, three reasons. First reason why we need to be brave is because God's people have many enemies. In the Old Testament, that command to be strong and courageous was given to a people who had to enter the promised land and they had to, they had to fight and they had to destroy uh, numerous tribes there, the Canaanite tribes. And they were big. And there were lots of them. And uh, they had fortified, great fortified cities. And some of them, either in reality or in the imagination of the spies who went across and saw them, some of them were even giants. And the result of hearing that report was that the courage of Israel failed. And they didn't want to go across. And I want you to note this, that the, Lord, the Lord's response to that was that he punished an entire generation of his own covenant people because they were cowards and they fell and died in the wilderness. That's how seriously the Lord took this matter of courage or the failure to show it. You can read that in Numbers 13 and 14 if you want to. As time went by, they had more trouble with these kind of enemies. The Philistines, Syrians, Assyrians, even the Egyptians sometimes, Babylonians. In the New Testament times, God's people also had to contend with unbelieving Jews, very hostile. Uh, they had to contend with pagan Gentiles, also sometimes very hostile, especially when their livelihoods were threatened. 
But behind all of that, all of these human enemies, and they were great and they were fearsome and they caused a lot of trouble, behind all of that lay Satan. They were only human allies of the devil. And he, congregation, is the great enemy. He is far more fearsome and strong even than those giants in the promised land that the spies were so frightened of. He's the roaring lion, according to the scripture. As we read in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not merely against flesh and blood, people like the Canaanites. Not, uh, it's not merely against uh, the governments, the pagan governments of New Zealand or elsewhere in the world, or unbelievers who can't stand us and would like to crush the church if they could. No, our struggle is against, primarily against the world, the spiritual forces of wickedness, according to Ephesians 6. Sure, Satan uses the physical threat as well. He uses these human allies as he has throughout history. He uses persecution and he uses the fear that God's people have of those consequences that governments and others can bring upon us. He uses that again and again. But surely we face at least as much threat, if not more, from the temptations that come from that roaring lion, the things that appeal to part of us, our old nature, appeal to our lusts and our, the, the temptation to compromise, the, the uh, temptation to adopt error, the temptation to become discontented with our lot in life, and so on and so on. We've got more to worry about with those things than we have even from humans from the human allies of Satan. And one of the problems is we tend to fear the things we can see. We tend to fear the men, the giants of Canaan and so on. We tend to fear them more than we do the roaring lion because we can see them and we can't see him. And therefore we are not nearly conscious of enough of our need for strength and for courage in the spiritual battles. which is one aspect of the second reason why we are commanded throughout the scripture to have courage and to be brave. We need to have that command so frequently because the fact is that we're not like that by nature. We're weak, terribly weak by nature. It is a weakness to be so uh, unaware and little concerned about the spiritual battles and the work of the devil in our lives. That is a weakness. And it's one we all suffer from to some degree. It is an evidence of weakness that we fall so frequently to these temptations that the devil brings to us. And it is a sign of weakness that we do so, particularly when we're under pressure. When we're under pressure from ongoing affliction, and we've asked the Lord to remove it, but it doesn't go away. It's the kind of situation David sometimes faced at certain periods in his life when we're under that kind of pressure or the ongoing pressure from the world to conform, pressure from our peers and so on, from the media, what we tend to do is we tend to use pressure as an excuse for disobedience. And we do that because we're weak. And if we don't see that and really grapple with that, then we're not going to seek the courage and the strength from the Lord that we need to. If we don't see the extent of our weakness and our need for help. 
Third reason we're commanded to be brave is the covenant. That's the context in Deuteronomy 31. That's the context in Joshua 1 and so on. The context is this, that God in his covenant, in his covenant mercy, has promised his people he's going to look after us, he's going to deliver his people, he's going to save us, protect us, and preserve us from all of our enemies, whether the human ones or the, uh, the roaring lion, ultimately from all of our enemies... And he is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Faith, that which trusts in the Lord and in his promises and in his word, must therefore be courageous in response. If that's the kind of God we've got, which we have, if they're the kind of promises he's made, which he has, then the only proper response we can have is to believe that and to trust in it, and therefore to be courageous. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, by the way, that would be, I would suggest to you, that's the reason why the Lord punished Israel so strongly for cowardice. Because their cowardice in that covenant context was actually faithlessness, it was covenant rejection. They failed in that proper response to the covenant and they were punished accordingly. Uh, Note the wording in Deuteronomy 31 Verse 6, after commanding God's people to be strong and courageous, it immediately goes on to give the reason, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And congregation, that's a covenant promise. The name Lord, Yahweh, uh, that is the name that generally is used to express God's eternal, unchanging nature and his covenant relationship with his people. It's a very usual, not always, but generally, uh, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And no accident, therefore, that in our text in Psalm 27, verse 14, we're commanded, wait for Yahweh, wait for the Lord, wait for that covenant-keeping Lord who has made a covenant relationship with you. And the, uh, this is reflected all through the psalm, really, uh, this, this covenant promise. David expects to see the goodness of the Lord, verse 13. That's a covenant promise. He has this confidence because God is the God of his salvation, verse 9. That's a covenant promise. Those promises are fulfilled, especially in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the salvation that he brings. And when you think about it, you see that he is the one who actually came in perfect obedience and fulfilment of this very command to be strong and courageous and to wait for the Lord. And if you doubt that, then read the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If ever anyone needed courage, he knew what he faced on the cross. And yet he waited upon the will of his Father and he went to that, to that uh, fate he went to the cross with all of the terror that he knew, that knew so deeply knew that that was involving. He went to that with courage and uh, was strong in that in obedience to his father's will. And that was what was necessary in order to save us. Courage was necessary. Covenant courage was necessary to uh, save us. And our only proper response to that, there's only one proper response to that, and that is that we ourselves seek 
his strength to be strong in obedience and faithfulness and service to the Lord who has done these things for us and who is like that. In the second and final place then, what does it mean to be brave with this covenant courage? Well, we mustn't think that it's just a matter of being brave in the, in the usual sense. Uh, it doesn't just mean that we've got to act like men, including the women, to uh, act like men. I know uh, this is something that Mark understands uh, about courage in that sense because he was uh, interested in the armed forces for a while and uh, also works in embassy security, so they're areas where a certain amount of bravery could certainly be required. But of course the courage we're talking about here requires something quite different. It requires the admission of weakness, as we've already seen. Our courage and our strength is not a matter of uh, screwing our fears down and going ahead and doing the right thing, even though we're frightened of the situation that we're in. That's the normal kind of human courage. That's the sort that earns a Victoria Cross or whatever else, uh, crawling out under enemy fire and saving a comrade in arms, that kind of thing. That's the normal sense of courage. But what we're talking about here means it requires looking to the Lord for strength despite our circumstances. It doesn't require in the first place that we simply look for human strength despite circumstances, but that we look to the Lord's strength despite circumstances. And again we see that throughout the psalm, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? It's not my own strength, it's not my own courage, it's the Lord. Verse 9, you have been my help. Haven't been my own help, you've been my help. Verse 11, teach me, calling to the Lord, teach me, lead me in a level path because of my foes. I'm not going to lead myself, Lord, you lead me. Verse 13, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. Not that I'd see my own courage and my own goodness, I'd see the goodness of the Lord. This is not about human strength or courage. And I dare say that's the reason why this command to be strong and take courage is bracketed in this last verse by the command to wait for the Lord. Have a look at that in verse 14. It uh, opens, wait for the Lord. Then comes the command, be strong and let your heart take courage. And then again, winding it up, yes, wait for the Lord. And that puts the emphasis away from what, uh, what we have in ourselves and it puts the emphasis upon the Lord and what he gives. You and I will not find covenant courage if we don't wait to get it from the Lord. Waiting in this sense means looking to the Lord. It means asking him for help. It means trusting him for help, for salvation, for relief. And also it means looking to him and asking him for the strength to act faithfully in the meantime. Looking for deliverance and asking for help to be faithful in the meantime. And there is probably nothing harder than doing that when you are under fire, when you are under pressure or under attack, whether that's from affliction 
or persecution or temptation because those are precisely the times that we feel like running away. We don't feel like waiting upon the Lord patiently. We don't feel like being obedient. We just want to run away. Or, depending on what kind of person we are, that's the time we most feel like taking matters into our own hands. We're not going to wait for the Lord. not going to do it his way. We've got to take action. We've got to do it now or else everything's lost. So we'll just forge ahead with our own agenda. Those are the times that we most tend to take those responses. But waiting, waiting when you're under pressure, I think that's, that's one of the bravest things that we're called to do in the Christian life. Uh, you can imagine if it's, um, you have a soldier who's <clears throat> part of a, a battalion or a unit under, under fire in a difficult situation and they're told by their officer to hold their fire, wait for the command, wait. <clears throat> and there's uh, hordes of screaming enemies rushing down the hill towards them, but they have to wait. Now what courage is required for that? Or if they're told you've got to hold that hill until reinforcements arrive and you're hopelessly outnumbered, what courage is required for that? And for the Christian, to wait for the Lord requires courage. It's all involved in this verse 2, waiting and being strong and courageous. Covenant courage is also seen in uncompromising obedience during this waiting stage. While that soldier stands his ground, while he's waiting for his further orders, while he's waiting for reinforcements or whatever else it is, he must still obey every other order or command that has come from his commanding officer. Not only the command to wait, but everything else as well. Pressure is not a valid excuse for disobedience. I was angry because I was under so much stress at that time. I watched that movie that I shouldn't have because everyone else there wanted to see it. I stopped praying because my affliction wouldn't go away. I'd asked the Lord again and again, but he didn't take the affliction away. So I gave up praying. Pressure is not an excuse for disobedience. And young people are going to need courage, therefore. They're going to need this kind of courage, the courage that God gives as much now as ever to deal with those kind of pressures and situations. Young people, not only the young people, but certainly the young people, are going to need this kind of courage that God gives to say no to the pressures of the world regarding sexual sin. I pick on that because that is the thing that the media, with all its enticements and allurements, is going flat out to try to involve us in. And it's going to need a lot of courage to say no to that. And other sins as well, of course. And it is also going to require courage to hold to the Reformed faith, and I, I say this, I draw attention to this, also realising that Reformation Day comes around this week, and it's um, very timely that we think about this at this time. But we live in a time when, unlike uh, just after the Reformation, the bulk of Protestants were Reformed. And we don't live in such a time now. The bulk of Protestants are not reformed. And in such a situation, it is very easy to think that the reformed way is so out of touch. It's an outdated relic from the past. It's a dinosaur 
that should be laid to rest, its bones laid to rest. A time when it seems so arrogant to say, considering we're such a small minority, so arrogant to say that the Reformed faith is the biblical faith. And you and I are surrounded by people who will say to us when you make those kind of comments, who do you think you are, you Reformed people? Do you think you're the only true church? Do you think you've got all the answers? That is the kind of talk that you hear when a Reformed church has lost its way. That's actually an attack on the Reformed faith. I'm not talking about the issue of whether we're the... uh, We're a perfect church. Of course we're not a perfect church. And we have plenty of evidence for that. and know that only too clearly. But we should be able to say without shame, congregation, that the Reformed faith is the true religion. That's the language of the Westminster Confession. And it's correct. So we're not talking about us as individuals or our behaviour as a church. We're talking about the Reformed faith and that system of doctrine that comes straight out of the Bible. And the attack upon that is that uh, that's just one option among many, maybe the best option, but it's not the only one. And our young people especially are going to need courage to resist that attack upon the Reformation. And the older ones are going to need it too. That's the courage we pray for, for them and for ourselves. But the kind of courage that is commanded here also involves a joyful expectation. And the word wait that is used here, the Hebrew word actually implies that eager and joyful expectation. Confidence is really the key theme of this Psalm 27. Just have a look at verse 3 again in Psalm 27. Though a host encamp against me, I've just said we've got that situation in a way, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this I shall be confident. And uh, also in verse 13, I would have despaired unless... I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is not some grim and sullen determination that I'm just going to grit my teeth and bear it until the Lord decides to deliver me. That's stoicism. That's not covenant courage. That's stoicism. No, for the Christian, no matter what it may be that afflicts or frightens you, The Christian lives in eager and joyful anticipation that God will deliver him ultimately in the next life in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also that he will bless you in the present present life, also in Christ, and even in the midst of affliction, no matter how great it may be. The Christian doesn't simply, in his courage, uh, grit his teeth, and uh, try to keep a stiff upper lip, as they say. He lives in expectation that he will see the goodness of the Lord to him, even now, in the land of the living. Otherwise, he would despair. He's not going to despair. Otherwise, he'd despair. Such courage is all too rare. It is all too rare, sadly, even in the church. And so we pray that the Lord will give us a church full of braves, and not only young ones, but also 
that we may have a few older ones too. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, would you supply to us both young and old strength and courage, the strength and courage we need to resist the devil, to resist the pressure from the world and the pressure that comes from our own flesh. Father, give us the strength and the courage we need to be constant in the face of persecution and in the face of pressure to compromise and to conform. Father, give us the courage to be different. And so, Father, to pursue sanctification with your aid. Father, give us the courage to boldly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and cause us to look to you for this strength and not try to find it simply within ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.